Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, May 12th. We kick off with another edition of Ask the Doctor, featuring infectious disease specialist Dr. Craig Janney. As always, Dr. Janney joins us and answers COVID-19 questions as sent in by our listeners. If you don't know, it's International Nurses Day, and we're going to mark the occasion by catching up with Deborah Bader, ICU nurse at the Foothills Hospital. We hear in Deborah's own words what she sees and deals with every day in the ICU amid the pandemic. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so we check in with Dr. Tim A.S. of Calgary Sandstone Treatment Centre about the resources available to Albertans who've really been struggling over this past year. And finally, are you planning on doing some spring cleaning? If so, have you considered cleaning up your digital footprint? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we catch up with tech expert Mark Saltzman with details on why we should and how to go about such a cleanse. 8-11 now, and so many questions still surrounding COVID-19 and the various vaccines, especially AstraZeneca right here in Alberta. Lots of questions coming, and he's got the answers for us, no doubt. Joining us once again this morning, Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Dr. Janney. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Let's get underway because we have 7,000 questions to get to once again today. So uh, we'll start with this one. Uh, When you receive Receive the second dose, whatever it might be, this texter's will be Pfizer. Is it the exact same amount in the vaccine or is it less than the first dose? So my understanding for the current vaccines is it is the same amount. Now, they were under original clinical trial. They tried different doses, and these are the optimal doses. So we have gone through that. We've worked out whether the right amount of vaccine for the second dose uh, is the same or not, and and that has been tried in, in phase three trials. So we're going with what is optimal at this point. Next text here. Um, some texters say they feel like they were tricked into taking the AstraZeneca vaccine, so they want to know if they refuse a second shot, what is their level of protection with just the first one? And some texters also insisting that the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine was useless. So if you can talk a little bit about that. So the AstraZeneca vaccine is still a very good vaccine, and I think there's a lot of confusion around the numbers. And We have to remember that those original efficacy numbers, how well it works, is really comparing apples to oranges to the other vaccines. They actually measured different things at different times in different parts of the world. So each clinical study had a different, for example, percentage of people that had a variant. The original vaccines, uh, Pfizer, Moderna, were tested before the variants even emerged. So they never even dealt with those in their clinical studies. And their clinical studies measured severe disease, not infection. The AstraZeneca actually measured infection rather than severe disease. So that's why it has a lower percentage. If we compare severe disease, ICU admission, all of the vaccines are about the same level, greater than 90% protection against ICU admission. So it's a very good vaccine. but you need to get the full course of it. We know that if you don't get the second shot, although your protection remains fairly high for a few months, it's going to fade much more quickly. and You will not have that durable immunity to protect you, for example, into the winter or, or spring of next year. Okay, good to know. Uh, what do we know right now about mixing and matching of vaccines? So we don't have any clear, defined data. The early results coming out seem to suggest it does work and and seems to work well. So we are anticipating an update here in the coming weeks. There is a full clinical trial happening right now in the United Kingdom looking at mixing and matching, starting with AstraZeneca, following with Pfizer, but vice versa, starting with Pfizer, following with AstraZeneca. And we're going to get those numbers as to not only how safe, 
but can they actually enhance immunity if we mix the two different types of vaccine? And hopefully those numbers will be out soon and we can update our guidance here in Canada based on the clinical trial. Just one more quick AZ question. You talked about that mixing and matching, something we've covered uh, quite a bit, even with you, Dr. Janney. Uh, but the one texture says, why don't we uh, just go out and shop for those other like 260,000 AstraZeneca vaccines uh, for us uh, who've had the first shot versus even considering the mixing and matching? Why don't we look and, and fight hard for that second AstraZeneca? That's what Alberta's doing at the moment. We're reserving enough for that second dose. But there is a possibility. We, we don't know yet. This is why clinical trials happen, that by mixing and matching, we might even be able to enhance the immunity further. So have it broader coverage against variants or have it to a higher degree of protection. And once we get that clinical trial, we'll know that. If we can build better immunity by mixing and matching, I, I think that that'll be a very um, easy decision. Mm-hmm. If we mix and we can give you even stronger immunity, I think we're going to go that way. Uh, Doctor, what do you know about the vaccine affecting women's menstrual cycles? There's been a lot of talk about that lately. Yeah, we've we've heard a lot of reports. I haven't seen anything clinically, statistically proven that, that, that there's a measurable effect in everybody. What we do know is in the longer term, there is no impact on, for example, fertility or, or long-term health risks. And in fact, it is being recommended now even for people who are pregnant. So we know that there's no long-term risks. There can be, you know, short-term acute uh, inflammatory things that disrupt just normal body function for, for a day or two after getting the shot. And we see that with some people tired, some people with a fever. So very short-term effects, but nothing long-term. Dr. Janney, we have to take a quick commercial break. Can you stick with us for two more minutes? Sure thing. That's good stuff. 819, more of your COVID-19 questions answered by Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist at the University of Calgary. Let's get right back into it, Dr. Janney. Uh, this is interesting because we've heard about the wastewater being tested in cities for the COVID virus uh, shedding to detect infection. So this texture wants to know, is there any chance we could see a urinalysis to test for COVID uh, rather than a PCR test like we currently use? Yes, there is a possibility. We do know with a lot of infectious diseases and a lot of work is currently happening here in Calgary on bacterial infections, we can find traces of them in the urine. And this is often something we would term metabolite. So you have to remember that an infection changes the way your body works. You're going to make small changes to the chemical profile in your blood or in your urine. And we can detect that shift and that tells us which pathogen you may be infected with. So there's very active work currently in the city at the university that is looking at doing exactly If a stroke or a cardiac event victim is advised to take daily low-dose ASA to help prevent or dissolve clots, should there be similar advice given to recipients of the AstraZeneca vaccine, Dr. Jenny? So that's a great question, and the answer is no. These are two different methods of clotting, two very different kinds of blood clots. And treating the AstraZeneca-induced blood clots, uh, as rare as they are, with the same therapy that we use for for the, the everyday risk of blood clotting actually can worsen the disease. So if you do detect any symptoms of a blood clot following AstraZeneca, immediately inform your doctor and there will be a shift in the anticoagulants they're using. Dr. Jaddy, we hear a lot of the same questions before we bring them to you and we hear different rumors. Uh, so this is one that was surfaced in the past couple of weeks, I believe. Can you please ask Dr. Janney if it's true that a rabies vaccination and treatment could give a person immunity against COVID? I've not seen any evidence of that, and we do know from other ongoing trials that there's no specific immunity from another vaccine. There is a little bit of evidence, and this is with a a, a clinical trial that seems to have stalled. So early numbers were good, but uh, we've not 
really seen why it hasn't progressed that tuberculosis vaccines could offer some protection. It's not true immunity. It doesn't recognize this virus, but perhaps just primes your lungs to fight it off a little easier. As I said, that trial was very exciting at the beginning. Early results look great. And then for the last six or seven months, it seems to have stalled, which makes me su- uh, suspect the results were not quite as clear as they hoped when they en- enrolled enough patients. Okay, here's another one. We've heard it before, but if you could speak to it again. If a person had fever and chills after the first vaccine, is that the reaction um, to the vaccine in your body? Uh, and should we expect more or worse with the second shot? I've not seen direct in every patient that it is more or worse than the second shot. It still seems to be fairly random. But, yes, that is the vaccine working in your body. So things such as fever are actually a defense mechanism of your body. That's your immune system being activated. So if you're getting those things following the vaccine, yeah, that's exactly what they're supposed to be doing. It is activating your immune system. You're getting a systemic recognition of that, and you're building that immune memory so that when you do encounter the virus, you're ready for it. Delving into government here, because, I mean, obviously we hear from the Premier and Dr. Hinshaw on a regular basis here talking about, you know, when we could see reopening. So this texture says, and I want your personal opinion on this, do we need a certain level of protection before opening? And can you comment on what you would think that level of protection as far as percentages of vaccinated? So I do think we need a a good level of protection if we want to reopen the way life used to be. Unfortunately, I think that bar is very high. So we do know that... The, the more infectious a virus is, which is exactly what these, these new variants are, they're more infectious than the original strain, the higher the percentage of people in the general public need protection to stop spread. Early estimates were in the you know, mid-60s, low-70s. That was prior to the variants. I, the studies I've seen now with the variants are suggesting we need closer to 80% of the public to be vaccinated for true population protection. So one of the key steps there is this expanded age cohort. We have to remember that more than 20% of Albertans are under the age of 18. So until we get enough people vaccinated, it's going to be very difficult to get to that community protection and get back to life with no restrictions. Thank you so much once again for your time, Dr. Jenny. Appreciate it again. You're welcome. Take care. You too. That is Dr. Craig Jenny, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. 844, nurses don't often brag about the incredible work they do. So on International Nurses Day today, it's our job to say thank you to them for being our unsung superheroes, particularly through this past year. Joining us now is an ICU nurse at Foothills Hospital, Deborah Bader. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, Sue. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And thank you for all that you do and all your fellow nurses. And, you know, we wanted to talk to you after the heartfelt post that you put up on Facebook about what you and and the nurses have been living through during this pandemic. So we wanted to talk to you about this and, and particularly one of the comments that you made. And that was that you wished people could walk through hospitals with you right now to see what you see on the daily. Why do you think that would be so important? Well, you know, I mean... First and foremost, uh, I, I do think that as nurses, you know, we're not, we, we're uncomfortable in the role of being a superhero. But at the same time, we sit there, I, I had to say, I wish that people could just come in and see for their own eyes what people are going through and not be looking necessarily at the numbers. And when you can see someone right in front of your eyes and see what the families are going through and the individual is going through, it changes what you are going to believe during all of this, right? Mm-hmm. 
And we know that our nurses and all of our healthcare workers have incredible training and, of course, continue to upgrade what, what, the, what they do for a living. How, however, I'm wondering, Deborah, if, if, if anybody could have really been trained for a situation like this and, and uh, you know, what the mental anguish. Right, right. Yeah, no, I don't think that anyone could have been trained for something like this. I mean, we went through this back in, I think it was 2009 with H1N1, right? Um, but this is nothing compared, H1N1 was nothing compared to what this is. And for sure, I mean, we hear the nurses, the doctors, everyone talking about this isn't something that we could prepare for, right? Um, is, is that what so, you mean, Deb, by compassionate burnout when you refer to that then? Yeah, for sure, right? Because never before have we not had, you know, visitors and family not be able to come in, right? So when a patient comes in, even outside, whether they have COVID or not, the whole entire hospital is affected, right? The whole entire patients that are coming through. And so, you know, as nurses, we go into nursing because we care about people. It's our compassion, right? And so when, you know, you have someone come in there and you can't have family there to support them or you can't be holding their hand or you're seeing the anguish that is going on, it's really hard because now you've lost your ability to do your job and what you want to do, right? And so seeing that and not having um, the ability to do what we've always been trained to do, even though, you know, in ICU we're trained to take care of you know, infusions and and keep people alive, if you will, they're critically ill. However, there's a much deeper part of it as a nurse, especially an ICU nurse or any nurse for that matter, that we want to support the family. We want, and that has been, you know, removed from us, right? And so we've lost some of that, you know, we're really burning out that way, right? We're losing that ability to give what we've been trained to do. Deborah, we have to take a quick commercial. Can you stay with us for two more minutes? You betcha. That'll be great. Uh, more with Deborah Bader, ICU nurse at the Foothills Hospital. 8.50, mornings with Sue and Andy. Well, if you don't know, it is International Nurses Day today, and we're very fortunate to have Deborah Bader spending a couple minutes with us out of her busy day, an IC, ICU nurse at the Foothills Hospital. Thanks for hanging around with us here, Deborah. Um, yeah, you betcha. I have to ask you this because, you know, we have heard uh, throughout this pandemic a lot of, uh, you know, rumors and, uh, you know, conspiracy theories to a certain extent. I'm wondering how it makes you feel. For example, I'll give you this one example when people have said on social media or just in conversations with friends or coworkers who say, well, you know what, I know a nurse and that nurse tells me that the ICU is empty. I don't know why the government is putting us through this. What do you, what do you think when you hear statements like that? Well, I'd, I'd say um, come to the foothills <laughs> because it's certainly anything but empty. Um, and, you know, when nurses are working several, you know, several, I can't even say eight, maybe shifts, 12-hour shifts in a row, that is not a normal schedule. So, um, yeah, that I don't know where that's coming from. It's certainly not coming from our hospital. What do you hear from your fellow nurses? Do you hear from people who think, you know, are now thinking twice about doing what they do, doing what they obviously were compelled to do? Yeah, and you know what? It's it's even younger nurses. I mean, I've been doing it for 30-some years, and you're seeing younger nurses saying, you know, they're just, they're down, right? I mean, they're going through everything else that everyone else is going through on a regular basis, and then adding this on top. And, um, and the frustration, I guess it is, that 
when you're hearing those kinds of things out in public and they're talking about numbers and this and that, and you're standing in front of a young person who, you know, may have just said goodbye on the phone to their family um, before they are put on a ventilator, that's, you know, that's really hard. And, and people are definitely thinking thinking it over twice, even though it's something that they love to do, right? Deb, on this day uh, to recognize nurses, I'm wondering uh, what can we do uh, as family, friends, uh, you know, uh, uh, people who are neighbors uh, to appreciate nurses? What, what can we do to show our appreciation? Well, like I said, I don't think, you know, um, you know, nurses want to be seen as superheroes. And there's so many other people in healthcare as well, you know, respiratory therapists. I mean, it all comes together. We're truly a family out there. But in all, I think, you know, I think you just got nurses got to feel that when you're out on the street or, you know, we don't see many people nowadays, but when you are out there that someone says, hey, you know what, I appreciate you, right? I appreciate what you're doing. And it, and again, it's just knowing that I think that we, we're not the bad guy in there too, because sometimes I think we're feeling like a little bit like people don't believe what we've had years and years of experiencing and what we're seeing in front of our eyes, right? Well, we are grateful for all you do and your fellow nurses. And uh, on International Nurses Day, we should all show our love for you. Thanks so much for joining us, Deb. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for being there at the bedside of all the people who are suffering through this this crazy virus that we're, we're living through right now. That is Deborah Bader, who's an ICU nurse at the Foothills Hospital. Well, it has been a very difficult year for so many people, and a new study from the University of Lethbridge shows many people are turning to alcohol and cannabis to cope with pandemic PTSD. But what help is available to struggling Albertans? We're checking in this morning with Dr. Tim Ias, who is an addiction specialist at Calgary's Sandstone Treatment Centre. Good morning, doctor. Doctor, are you there? Dr. Ias? Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Hi. Yes, I can. Hi. Thanks Got for having now. me on today. Thank you Hi. so much for joining us. Uh, let's talk a little bit about it. Uh, an interesting study for sure. We've certainly heard through this past year or so that addictions, overdose rates have worsened through the pandemic. Can you break down the study a little bit for us? Oh, for sure. Uh, unfortunately, uh, addiction rates have gone up considerably during the pandemic. Uh, this is for opioids, this is for alcohol, cannabis. Um, you know, it's shown in Stats Canada data as well as the study you're mentioning. Um, there's unfortunately a lot of reasons for this, but uh, this is definitely a trend we have all noticed uh, who work in the field. Dr. Ayas, how, how are we set up, not just in this city, but in the province when it comes to resources to, to tackle these issues? Well, we have a number of excellent resources in the public system. Um, you know, the Opiates Dependence Program, the Rapid Access Addiction Medicine Program, the of course, the uh, Claire's Home and Lander Center for Inpatient Residential Renfrew Detox, we have many resources, but we are getting a bit overburdened, uh, which is one reason why uh, I think having kind of a access to some private services is something that the system uh, direly needs actually during this crisis. When we talk about pandemic PTSD, what do you mean exactly by that? Oh, pandemic PTSD in the study was an interesting uh, concept. Really, in essence, whenever there's any crisis, and this is seen in international studies that kind of affect a large group of people, addiction rates actually do go up quite often, uh, actually usually for at least a two-year period after. So and I think the pandemic would qualify as being fairly traumatic for many people for many different reasons. So the isolation, the economic issues, and, and so uh, that's one reason why you know a lot of people have actually developed 
traumatic-like symptoms from the pandemic in itself. You mentioned that two-year mark, so I would guess that this is, a, to a certain extent, the tip of the iceberg as far as what is to come for those people who are still, you know, struggling with maybe jobs and the change of routine and, and getting back to normal and even that being a change. So are you expecting us to see this with us and the, the term PTSD to be hanging around for quite some time? Yeah, and, and really not just, to be honest, um, you know, uh, to be expected. It already is happening. If you kind of look at the amount of resources that are being utilized already, uh, it's not an upcoming uh, epidemic. Unfortunately, it probably is a current one. Let's talk a little bit about the facilities that are available to help folks who may have had problems before and which have been exacerbated, or it's a new problem now in terms of the addiction issue. So where are we with you know, government-run facilities, for example, here in Alberta? Well, I mean, we're doing our best. I mean, I work in both the public and private system, and the public system is doing really a yeoman's job, really, in terms of how much extra work we're trying to catch up. Um, when we can't see people in person, telemedicine has really become a huge boon uh, to access uh, for those who actually have access then to a uh, computer or smartphone. Um, and so, you know, there, there's many outpatient resources in the Calgary area, like the Foothills Addiction Center, uh, ODP I had mentioned already, the Rapid Access Addiction Medicine, and inpatient residential would be the Lander Center and Clarezone Center, um, just uh, south. Dr. Ayas, let's talk a little further about addiction because it's an interesting animal and in that it's not a one-size-fits-all. I think a lot of us have this mm-hmm. opinion of somebody who has an addiction and maybe you know can't hold a job down as a result, uh, but there are uh, there's a myriad uh, of different levels and uh, recognizing addiction, if you could touch on that as well. Yeah, well, I mean, there there are a lot of different levels in terms of, you know, first of all, how ready a person is to address the addiction. That That's actually uh, what changes the most often. Um, in terms of, um, you know, the amount of trauma that people have been through, everybody's been through different things. And unfortunately, trauma then does uh, predispose you later on to life to uh, develop addiction issues. Uh, undiagnosed or possibly already diagnosed um, concurrent mental health disorders also will predispose you towards addiction. So having like any services available to address that um, is, will go a long way to help with this epidemic. Doctor, with this University of Lethbridge study particularly, uh-huh. were, were you able to see and break down in terms of through this pandemic, you know, women versus men, who it's affecting and who is getting into these addictions a little bit deeper and age groups as well? Well, I mean, I'd leave that to the author of the study to go into the direct details, to be honest. Uh, but, but really, it affects all groups. I mean, addiction often does affect more males than females as a coping mechanism. But unfortunately, those rates have kind of been narrowing over the years. Um, and then when there's a trauma focus as well, um, there's even less of a gender bias at times. Um, in terms of age groups, in terms of addiction... Uh, I mean, it can be myriad, unfortunately, in terms of the age groups. But the ones that are usually hit hard are, are kind of the, the age groups between 20 and like uh, 45 to 6 or to 50 uh, in some studies uh, when it comes to trauma-related. Um, and especially with the opioid epidemic, those are the age groups that seem to be affected the most. Dr. Ayas, where, where can we start? Because I know for some people out there, it's taking that first step. Where mm-hmm. do we start to, to, to find help? Uh, where's the well, best place to reach out? Well, that, that's a great question. I mean, to be honest, I mean, all those programs I had mentioned earlier, and there's a lot of um, access through Alberta Health Services uh, in terms of uh, access lines and the provincial addiction line. And that, that's just one reason why, you know, the 
uh, with the private system now kind of, uh, you know, having a, a large response as well in terms of different inpatient residential treatment centers such as Sandstone. Um, and it, it really does help in terms of bringing in immediate access for patients who are really struggling because generally when people have an addiction, when they want to get help, the more immediate access is what's usually required. Mm-hmm. Um, and to kind of jump in there as soon as they're ready, because sometimes that readiness will waver, right? And so that's why it really does help to have the private system kind of involved to assist now. Tell us, for example, you know, a facility like Sandstone, what, what, mm-hmm. what's that all, what happens there? How does that work? Well, it's an inpatient residential treatment facility um, that essentially can really individualize care for people who have an addiction and possibly a concurrent mental health disorder. It's really a multimodal treatment center, which kind of follows very evidence-based psychological, holistic, and pharmacologic recovery pathways to assist patients, or or people, I should say, not patients, to assist people who have uh, an addiction issue and possibly a concurrent mental health disorder. Incredible. Thank you uh, for your time. Super timely. And uh, like you were saying, this is something that's going to be with us for longer than the next couple of months. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on today. This is Dr. Tim Ayas, an addiction specialist at Calgary's Sandstone Treatment Center here in Calgary. At 642, let's face it, most of our lives exist online. So tidying up your digital footprint could be one of the most important forms of spring cleaning that you do this year. With some tips on how to get started and why it's so important, we're joined this morning by Mark Saltzman, tech expert and host of the CNBC TV show, Tech Impact. Good morning, Mark. Hey, Sue, Andy, good morning. Thanks for having me. Great to chat with you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, To begin, what exactly is our digital footprint? (laughs) Sure. So it's really information about a particular person that exists on the internet as a result of our online activity. So most everything we do online leaves a digital footprint of some sort, and that could be used to make up a valuable profile about you for either marketing purposes or worse, fraudulent activity. So a digital footprint is things like your social media posts, including photos that you're tagged in that somebody else posted. It can be your search history, your browsing history, location history, your online payment transactions, even unsecured messages that you send. Uh, This all can help make a digital footprint. And then there's another part of it, Sue, as well, which is the data that you may leave behind on a device that you want to donate or recycle. There's also you know, valuable information on, let's say, an old desktop that you want to properly recycle in Alberta, or you want to donate it to a church or a community center. If you don't properly remove that information, then it could fall into the wrong hands as well. But it's mostly an online issue, but that's also a critical discussion as well. So, Mark, you are an expert. This is something that you could do with your eyes closed, I'm sure. But uh, for, for the rest of us, where do we start and what are the steps that we take to, to start this cleanup? Yeah, uh, and, and even um, self-professed geeks like yours truly uh, also has to, you know, we all sort of overshare at some point as well. So there's a, a few things you can do. Uh, speaking of sharing, the first thing I, I 
would recommend is to go through your social media accounts and your privacy settings and just go through it carefully. There's a lot of options out there about with whom you're sharing this information, who can tag you, um, do you need to turn on your location and do you really need people to know that you like to eat Mexican food at the corner of this street and this street, you know, or that you work here, you're sharing your employment information, your birth date, just do a a bit of a cleanup on your social posts and, and comb through who can see your accounts and just always remember that there are um, you know the tools out there these cyber these these scammers um, comb through and scrape through all this data and they compile that that um, profile of you so just go through all that and do some spring cleaning also no you know go through those accounts that you have and there's probably if not dozens hundreds of them you know how many shopping websites have you signed up with just to get a 10 percent discount on mm. your first purchase right <laughs> um, you know cooking apps uh, you know games that you've downloaded where they ask you to uh, give access to your contacts list for some reason you know we, we never read those terms and conditions but you know just don't blindly accept them and if you are by the way on an iPhone I love that um, two weeks ago they did give you the option now to ask not to track your online activity so kudos to Apple for doing that but on Android you know get just be extra vigilant about with whom you're sharing information um, have good antivirus software of course that's a must just like you wouldn't leave your front and back door of your home uh, unlocked when you leave it you definitely have to keep your devices protected I use one called uh, ESET internet security they have a couple of Canadian offices I really like them create good passwords of course never use the same ones even if it's a really good password, let's say it's 20 characters long with numbers and letters and symbols and uppercase, lowercase. If you use that same password on all your online activity, if that company is breached, then the bad guys have the keys You're to the hooped. kingdom. Yeah. Um, quickly, <laughs> exactly. before, we, before we let you go, just uh, wanted yeah. you to touch on VPN, virtual private network. What's a VPN? What do we need to worry about? Yeah. There? Becoming very popular in Canada and for good reason. These are uh, this is a piece of software that uh, lets you browse the web anonymously. It masks your online identity so you can't be tracked. If you don't have a VPN, when you log on to Google or to whatever, it'll know that you're from this neighborhood in Calgary. It may not know your exact address, but they'll know generally where you are, and then that'll also help them market to you or expose you to uh, fraudsters. So a VPN is something that you can have on all the time or you launch it before you go online, and it, it lets you browse anonymously. You can even choose what country you want to look like you're from. Mm. Uh, so I use VPNs all the time, especially as when we start to open up more. I know it sounds like a far way away, uh, ways away, but when you surf on public Wi-Fi, if you are going to do that, which is not recommended, at the very least use a VPN uh, so you can't be tracked. It's, it's a great piece uh, of mind to have a VPN on your uh, digital devices. Some great tips, some great advice. Get, <laughs> that, uh, get that broom out and dust away that digital footprint. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Mark. And you don't have to be Bill Gates to do it. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. That is uh, Mark Saltzman, tech expert and host of the CNBC television show, Tech Impact.